Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, happy Friday. We spend an awful lot of time on the show talking about China, its intentions, its crimes, its treatment of dogs. We've got pretty clear views on the Chinese government. Polls show that most Americans do. But here's a question we rarely ask. What do the Chinese think of us? Imagine watching one of your children die from an infected cut. China has the power to make that happen. The Chinese government is acutely aware of this power. That should worry you more than anything the candidates are currently talking about. So as we've been running out of food, China has been buying up America's farmland. China now owns more than $2 billion worth of farmland in the United States. Um, this seems like a threat to our national security if there ever was one. What can be done to stop it? Well, all over television, you're watching people downplay China's role in spreading the coronavirus and downplaying it at the beginning of lying about it. Forging an alliance between Russia and China seems like the end of American power in a lot of the world and a massive new threat that dwarfs anything. And at this rate, China will beat us. So the question is, how did America fall so far so fast? And the answer is simple, LeBron James. The key to remaining competitive with the Chinese military is more gender advisory. That kind of feels like what we're watching. Well, what we're watching is the destruction of the U.S. military. And what we're going to end up seeing, Tucker, is thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans die. That's We don't need a military that's woman-friendly. We don't need a military that's gay-friendly, with all due respect to the Air Force. We need a military that's flat-out hostile. We need a military full of type A men who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. And you know what, Jesse? I'm going to build my own throne of Chinese skulls. And I'm going to be sitting right next to you on that throne of Chinese skulls together. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is part two of our series on Tucker Carlson, his prompt exit from Fox News, his trajectory as a propagandist over the years, and what the impact of his rhetoric has been. Enjoy. So let's go into who Tucker really is is um, where he came from, his roots, because he's really rebranded a, a couple times and he really has been responsible for a lot of disgusting stuff in the media over the years. And um, it's really important to be reminded of who his family is and who he really is and where he comes from. Robbie. Let's do it. Um, so let's go back to the to the beginning. I mean, he kind of uses his childhood to make himself seem sympathetic you know his his mom was a drug user an alcoholic who left him and his brother at an early age he actually claimed in one interview that she made them really? use drugs i don't know how young he's talking about yeah um it's never really explained but anyways long story short is that his dad gets full custody of him and his brother and that his dad you know this is where the famous swanson frozen dinner food um fortune comes in that his dad married remarried patricia swanson so she was the heiress to the frozen so he married food into fortune it. the like says he married no into it and so <laughs> and so tucker has also made the point that he is a trust fund baby several times over that he is ridiculously wealthy because he is just so full of stuffed full of trust fund money. I'm assuming he has many, many millions just from the Swanson side of the family. His dad 
Mr. Carlson, Richard Carlson, had a political career and also an, a fascinating media career, Robbie. They grew up in La Jolla, which is the richest area of San Diego, um, in quite elite Republican circles. They were cohorting with, you know, would-be governor, gubernatorial cabinet um, candidates and media figures, very high, high-rolling media figures. Eventually, they moved to Washington, where his father led Voice of America, Voice of America under the Reagan administration. This is really, really interesting. And it goes back to you talking about how they use deflection to detract from what they do. You know, the whole CIA infiltrating the media. This is what his dad did. This was the purpose of Voice of America. This was the USAIA, the U.S. Information Agency, a government-funded media operation that included Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio and TV Marti, the the U.S.-funded radio station in Cuba that exists solely for regime change, Voice of America, which Dick was the director. Yeah, and what's fascinating about that is Tucker was awfully silent about his dad's connections to U.S. intelligence because that's what this is. Uh, It wasn't, you know, even when the CIA funding was officially dropped for Voice of America, it was still very much linked to that apparatus. That's what what it existed for, is for things like regime change and influencing, you know, people in government, other governments around the world that we were adversaries with to rise up against their government and to cause problems there. That's its primary purpose. So... Tucker never, never mentioned this. And only until this recent appearance he did with Tulsi Gabbard, did he actually say, and I I don't remember his exact words, but he said something like, I know this world, talking about how people in Congress are controlled by intelligence. He said, I know this world because my dad was in it. Like my dad was around it. There are members of Congress who are controlled by the intel agencies. I'm not speculating on this. You know, I I lived there for 35 years. I know this. Leader of, I would say, the neocons uh, in the House, kind of low-key neocons, but but neocons. Um, I got into an argument with him once last year on the phone. He told somebody that I was a Russian agent or something, and I was outraged. So I called him on the phone, and I, you know, I used bad language. I was really mad. And uh, he said, whoa, 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 I I just got that. You know, that's what the intel briefers told me, that you were working for Russia. And I said, that's what the intel briefers told you? You believe your fucking intel brief? Like, how yeah. old are you, son? You yeah. know, I'm from D.C. My dad was in this world. Like, yeah. you don't you're being manipulated by your intel briefers. So that's the first on record, like admission or acknowledgement of it that I know of that he's done since he's been trying to rebrand as this like anti-CIA guy. And it's, it's just fascinating because, you know, in his book, he acts like, he's like, I used to work with these neocons. Like I know what they're like, like here's what, you know, the way Robert Kagan used to act. He was a, he was really arrogant and blah, blah, blah. He's never done that with like his dad's, you know, being in this world. Like, what does he even mean? How far did that go for him as a child growing up? How deep was his dad in that world? What I mean, so it's like he'll say things like that, and people will be like, "Oh my God, Tucker, are you talking about your like? You've acknowledged it. Like, thank you. Now I don't have to like defend you anymore when people bring this up. It's but it's like, what is he actually saying? He's not saying anything. It's just it does seem like 
a sort of a pat admission so that he can act like he's, you know, acknowledged being involved in this world somehow. It, it's very interesting, though, that he finally addressed it at all. Um, and he wasn't asked about it. He just said it, you know, himself. So I don't know if that means he's, you know, concerned about branding himself and making sure that, you know, there, he throws out little breadcrumbs so that it doesn't seem like he's hiding certain things about his past. It all, to me, looks very strategic. Um, and I wanted to just point to... Well, maybe this is a this is a good... I mean, it is interesting if this happened, especially after he got fired, that he's just like, okay, now I actually do need to build credibility so I could now make a ton of money, yeah. you know, being outside the purview of Fox News and just kind of be more honest because then I can just gain even more credibility with these suckers. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because we're talking about his upbringing, how his dad married into basically a, a corporate fortune, family fortune. Uh, Tucker, when he wasn't on Fox News um, on a C-SPAN interview, he actually criticized Bill O'Reilly for, and this is one of the quotes from it. I'm going to play the clip after this. But he said, O'Reilly's success is built on the perception that he really is who he claims to be. If he ever gets caught out of character, it's over. There's a deep phoniness at the center of his shtick. And specifically what he meant by that was that he actually, I don't even, I don't know if he actually used the word populist, but yeah, we'll play the clip here. He's basically accusing Bill O'Reilly of pretending to be a populist when he's just a rich elite. And so let's, let's play that. Another quote from your book, Bill O'Reilly's success is built on the perception that he really is who he claims to be. If he ever gets caught out of character, it's over. That's right. I say before that, that, you know, Bill O'Reilly's really talented. He's more talented than I am. You know, he's got a lot more viewers than I do. He's a better communicator than I am. Uh, But I think there's kind of a deep phoniness at the center of his shtick. Uh, And again, as I say, the shtick is sort of built on this perception that he is the character he plays. He is every man, this kind of, he's not right wing, he's a populist. This kind of Irish Catholic populist fighting for you against the powers that be. And that's great as a shtick, but I'm just saying the moment that it's revealed not to be true, it's over. The moment he gets caught, you know, slapping a flight attendant on the Concord for not bringing his champagne fast enough or barking at, you know, one of his subordinates to take the, you know, brown M&Ms out of my bowl and get me a bottle of Evian or something like that. The second that makes page six, it's over, right? Because the whole thing is predicated on the fact that he is who he says he is. And just nobody is that person, especially not someone who makes a million dollars, you know, or many millions a year. The funniest part about this clip is him saying you cannot be a genuine populist if you're making that much money, if you're making millions of dollars on TV. And it's like, bingo, yeah, dude. I mean, he's he's right. I'll say that he's right about that. And it's just a matter of time before the, the shtick is exposed, basically. That's what he's yeah, saying. And, and let's say that someone like Tucker has had decades of experience knowing and being able maybe even a little he's maybe even a little prescient about the way the political currents and winds will change. And he, it seems like he's very, very savvy about how to rebrand his image. I mean, look at what he's done. He started as the bow tie guy on crossfire, like a, basically like a joke, like only people who took him seriously were like people like older than like boomers, like people like really old. I mean, that like, it almost seemed like that was his target market. Like, I'm this little cute little boy that your grandma can watch because I'm wearing a bow tie. Like, it, it really almost seemed designed <laughs> to 
to like market to those people. <laughs> so he's really come a long way with the branding. I mean, I think that just really speaks to his savviness. If he understood this back then, then he knows he's doing the same thing. He just did it way more effectively right. and convincingly. Right. And also, yeah. And what's really interesting, you really see the core of his essence, especially back in his Ivy League prep school that he went to. That's where he met. I think it was like the headmaster's daughter who he married and then had four children with. God help them. Um, but what's what really hit home to me was reading an article from Mint Press that talks about his um, yearbook photo. And you know how people like put little funny quotes or whatever next to their photos in the yearbook. Um, his was very interesting because he says he was a member of the Jesse Helms Foundation and the Dan White Society. Neither. I mean, there is an organization as a Jesse Helms Foundation, but I think that he was including that as a joke because Helms is remembered as one of the last openly racist politicians has, who is infamous for opposing civil rights and voting rights for racial minorities and actually is known for the 16-day Senate filibuster to block the approval of MLK Day. Um, Helms also worked closely with the CIA to prop up far-right dictatorships and overthrow the Sandinistas. Then he also says that um, he was a member of the Dan White Society. Dan White was the man who killed Harvey Milk, California's first openly gay elected politician. So Mint Press, um, it, you know, this is the first I heard of this was from this Mint Press article. And I thought it was interesting because they say this was probably done as a joke, like a tongue in cheek way of Tucker essentially saying I'm fucking racist and homophobic and I'm proud of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's so gross because it's like, yeah, we can talk about how he's anti-neocon all day and that he had this big moment of realization. But to the core of his being, he is a virulent racist and homophobe and he has never changed. I mean, it's, it seems pretty evident from what he chooses to talk about. I don't see how someone who was not bigoted could be putting out programming like that. I mean, you know, even if he's right. doing it to appeal to a certain audience or cultivate a certain kind of audience or whatever, it doesn't, it's like, if you're okay with doing that, even for disgusting. that reason, you're still a bigot. Like it's pretty. Right. And you're disgusting. And I mean, the amount it's, it, I, I think what's prop particularly disturbing too, about his homophobia, if that's, what's driving this, but it also feels like it's all part of some kind of coordinated you know, right-wing political machine to basically create like a violent climate for gay people and trans people is that he's actually played into the the whole groomer thing. I mean, not just like played into it a little bit, but actually like been a primary vehicle for that narrative that like the left and the gay LGBT groups are trying to create a like a framework to be able to groom and sexualize children. He's been a primary uh, proponent of that like agenda whatever wherever that agenda is coming from i mean and that's mm -hmm. i think that really speaks to his level of disgust for gays i mean it's horrific that's what it's just also been so gross to me it's like i don't care that he speaks really basic truths sometimes about ukraine or whatever it's like he is a disgusting homophobe who is ginning up hatred of trans people and gay people in this country. Like, yeah, fuck even that if, guy, dude. I'm never going to unite with that guy. I'm never going to give him props. Even if your main thing was just like boilerplate, 
opposing U.S. intervention in Ukraine and you didn't really want it to go much deeper than just that single issue thing. Yeah, it's like it still doesn't seem worth it to also empower and promote and white to whitewash because basically a lot of these people like whitewash or like defend end up defending him and make it seem like, well, he's at least he's doing all this good by going against the Ukraine war. But is it really worth that? Even if that's your only concern politically, I mean, I guess maybe that maybe that's the key is that those people that they are not concerned about, right. they're not concerned <laughs> just about hit it on the head. <laughs> they're not concerned about things like that. Right. So maybe that's how they're able to do that, which also speaks to maybe their soft or hard bigotry. Some of those people who claim to be anti-war leftists, probably like just kind of, you know, maybe some of them are bigoted. I don't really know. But yeah, it is um, it is really it's just, but but back to what you we were saying. He says simple truths. The thing he said about how there's CIA controlling members of Congress and members of the media. It's like I, I Thaddeus Russell like like um responded to my tweet saying this is like some really boilerplate shit that really means nothing. It's like saying this stuff right now is like trendy, and it really doesn't go any deeper than like just talking points. Every basic talking points everybody already understands, and 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 he's like, well. It's true, isn't it? Like why like why don't you think it's good if it's he's saying like something that's true? And it's like, but he's not saying anything that goes to a deeper level than that. Just it's it's total just fucking platitudes. There's no there's really no substance behind it. Well, speaking of the CIA, why don't you take it away with how he himself tried to join the CIA and then inexplicably goes to Nicaragua in this dirty war? Um, summer after my freshman year, my roommate and I decided to go uh, down to Nicaragua for the summer and work and, you know, get involved in the war, you know, and support the side that we thought was right, which is not the Sandinista side. And um, People know that you were actually a freedom fighter uh, who traveled down to Central America to fight with the Contras. And so the... Um... <laughs> Will you fill them in on that story? No. <laughs> <laughs> we spent the summer in Nicaragua um, trying to get a sense of the war there and all kinds of hilarity ensued, but, um, <laughs> not in Nicaragua. And I remember having very intense feelings about who was right and who was wrong. And so the, um, summer after my freshman year, my roommate and I decided to go, uh, down to Nicaragua for the summer and work and, you know, get involved in the war, you know, and support the side that we thought was right, which is not the Sandinista side. And, um, and we came away, I think, both learning that, you know, just a lot more complex than we thought. You know, that the good guys weren't as good as we thought. The bad guys were probably every bit as bad as we thought. But the two sides were commingling to a much greater extent than we ever imagined. You know? Right. And other people's affairs are really hard to decipher. It's like somebody else's marriage. You never really know, you know, what's going on inside it. So this clip was actually sent to me by someone who, you know, sometimes Media Roots listeners, and when I put out like a call to, you know, not not to action, I, w- I mean, I guess there's some action involved in this, but when I put out like a request uh, on Twitter, and I only have like, you know, maybe like 16,000 followers, not very many, but some of our listeners, I think, are very plugged into what we're doing and are very some of what we say really resonates with them, especially some of the Tucker stuff. Cause I think there's other, there's a lot of other people, Abby, who have been equally as frustrated as us seeing all this unfold and seeing all these people 
and alt media getting sucked into becoming just Tucker cheerleaders. You know, even some of these people we used to consider like left um, heroes, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if Glenn Greenwald could be described as left hero, but people who are, that I used to have a lot of respect for in the past. So someone, a really great listener of ours, um, they didn't want to be credited by name for this. Otherwise I would, because they did something I think great is they were just going clip hunting for Tucker Carlson. After I put out this request, I said, can somebody find clips of him talking about the Iraq war from the Bush era? I want to find him talking about nine 11, the war on terror anything having to do with any war basically previous to this whole rebranding campaign that he's done. And this guy just DMs me one day and he's like, Hey, I found all these Tucker Carlson clips. Um, you know, I've uploaded them all on, on YouTube for you to these private links. And you may want to use some of them, may not want to, but like, I think this clip of him talking about Nicaragua, like you may be particularly interested in. Um, and at, at first I was like, Nicaragua, like, what is, what is this guy talking about? And, it was obvious when I, after I watched it, as you guys just heard that it's like, Oh, anyone who's done a little bit of studying on um, U S regime change in the 1980s uh, you know, the anti-communism Latin American stuff, trying to crush basically the wave of socialism that continued to keep, you know, taking over or, or becoming more popular in parts of Latin America. What Tucker Carlson basically admitting to is that in college, he traveled down to Nicaragua to help the Contras, which was a CIA-funded force against a up against a like a guerrilla force, the Sandinistas, in Nicaragua, that were fighting for to try to like put in some kind of communist or socialist government. And it's like, okay, if you know anything basic about the CIA. This could only really mean one thing, is that he, in some capacity, was working either alongside of, or he was basically working with the CIA when he was in college. Not just doing, like, desk jockey work, like, field work, which is pretty fucking wild. I mean, and it's fascinating that even once this clip, you know, was posted by us, we were the first ones to put it out there, it's really still not really reached the level of making everybody realize, oh, wait, he was in the CIA. So what happened? Did he get out? Did he, you know, when did he go against the CIA? Because he seems really against it now. It hasn't created the dialogue, I think, that it should have created. But this is out there now. And this, to me, looks just as bad, if not worse, than Anderson Cooper admitting that he did a CIA internship for like a year. Because, I mean, what kind of intern... Like, Anderson Cooper didn't admit to going down to a foreign country that the CIA was involved in doing regime change in and helping the CIA side in that particular conflict. What if it was part of the cover that he's just like, yeah, I tried to get hired with the CIA, but they didn't take me. But then he really was secretly hired by the CIA to work alongside doing field work for the quote unquote right side, a.k.a. not the Sandinistas, according to Tucker Carlson, because then he goes on to... You know, at the same time, whatever programming he was doing, he was defending or no, I'm sorry, 20 years later, 30 years later, he's defending Ollie North. He's defending Elliot Abrams still. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, what is going on here? Like, you know, these are neocons, but you're still pretending like they did some great 
great altruistic thing in Nicaragua that you were essentially a part of. It's very strange. Well, it is very strange. And it gets even stranger when you realize that Elliot Abrams was involved in Iran-Contra. And he gets hired into the Trump administration at a, just a strange time where it's like Trump is trying to pretend like he's anti-war and anti-neocon. He's hiring Bolton. Then he hires Elliot Abrams. And then Tucker, you know, when he's trying to rebrand himself as the anti-war on Fox News, he basically does a segment defending Elliot Abrams and says, like, Iran-Contra was 30 years ago. Right. You know, like it was like an anti-Ilan Omar segment because she had gone after Elliot Abrams during like his contra- confirmation hearing. And But what's interesting is it's like Tucker literally wrote in the same weekly standard issues with Elliot Abrams, who was involved in arguably what was not just a CIA drug trafficking type of operation, but was involved in even more than that. But people involved in Iran-Contra were also connected to that. Oliver North is one of the primary ones. But it's so fascinating when you realize, oh, he's still defending this guy, 30 years later, that also worked at the Weekly Standard with him. So what's different about this guy that's like, is does he not think this guy is like a CIA-connected like neocon who was like instrumental in like doing, you know, bringing like, um even like helping bring cocaine into or allowing cocaine to be like imported into the United States? It, it just blows your mind when you realize that Tucker actually wrote a hit piece against Gary Webb, the guy who exposed CIA drug trafficking to begin with in the Weekly Standard. Um, I don't know. It just, to me, it's just really interesting that, you know, did he make, you know, who knows what Tucker actually did? We don't, we don't really know exactly if he got sheep dipped, like you're saying out, you know, and in terms of sort of unofficial capacity. And he was quote unquote, you know, not accepted into the CIA because he didn't pass some kind of official test. Who the fuck knows? But this is like, it's clear that he was doing something with them. Mm-hmm. You don't just go down in college as an activist to help the Contras. I mean, maybe, maybe was there some kind of cutout group that did that? Maybe, but even if there was, it would, when I say cutout group, it mean that they're probably like some wing of the CIA or state department or something. Um, I could see the only argument you can make against what I'm saying is that there was some kind of like, activist like group of just college kids who just on their own wanted to go down to help the CIA in, which is just in Nicaragua yeah you know but even still what does that mean I mean this it's just it's just absolutely fascinating to me yeah and so this was when you're talking about him working for the weekly standard this was back in 1995 so this is what really catapulted his fame especially um up the ladder of the neocon establishment um you know, it was it was published by Murdoch and he wrote about, you know, he he was on the tip of just excoriating Philane liberal college campuses, liberal enterprises, um, like woke stuff back then. Which <laughs> was which was really a neocon thing to do. People mm-hmm. forget that people mm-hmm. are like, oh, the neocons are like liberal now. And they're like, the neocons are woke. It's Mugged like by reality. It's it's all rebranding. They're yeah, their whole original thing, especially in the Weekly Standard, was all about uh going against gay marriage, saying college campuses were too woke, extremely hugely pro-Israel slant, saying that anyone who was like pro-Palestinian was like questionable and suspicious and we maybe even should look into their ties with terrorist groups. I mean, that's the kind of stuff they were putting out the whole time. And Tucker, for the most part, was almost, 
he would write some stuff like that too, but he mostly would just write like these boilerplate, like right-leaning, like culture pieces mm-hmm. in the Weekly Standard. So it was almost out of character compared to a lot of his other work in the Weekly Standard to write this piece. But as you said, this right. was a, I think this was a pivotal piece for him, which showed his fealty and loyalty to the CIA. I mean, specifically the CIA, uh, because yeah. that was the entity that was trying to shut down the reporting on this. They even went to the San Jose Mercury News and tried to shut it down. And he was, and Webb was driven to suicide in part because of Tucker's campaign alongside other corporate media outlets that were pushing these smears against him. Yeah. And what's interesting about, I don't, do you have the, any of the article in front of you? I don't, I don't. Well, I'll just, I'll just summarize it really quickly. He, he basically spends half the article basically, uh, he, it's heavily laced with racism against black people and black mm-hmm. politicians and making it what a shock. Yeah. And making it seem like Maxine Waters, who actually was one of the only people in government who tried to bring this into more prominence back when it came out, you know, compared to how she is now, it's pretty, you know, it shows how much a lot of these people go through like their own rebranding or evolution. I mean, he basically spends half of the article saying that like, she's a crazy out of control, emotional black woman who's trying to rile black people up when like black people just basically like are just like drug addicts and degenerates who got into the the mess of crack addiction and destroying their own neighborhoods it's completely themselves. It's their fault. And that this is merely trying to be like an excuse to absolve that. And also to like tarnish our government at the same time to give black people even like more fuel to like validate their own, like, you know, um, laziness or, I mean, that's basically the whole theme of the article. And he then just, you know, the actual section he spends debunking or trying to debunk Gary Webb's actual reporting is similar to the stuff he was saying in those James Carville transcripts, kind of just more like dismissive, mocking it, acting like it's conspiratorial to make any of these connections that Gary Webb made, which were very, I mean, you know, and 99% of the way is extremely valid, appropriate connections to make. Tucker is just taking that approach, like acting like it's meaningless, like, oh, this doesn't mean anything. Like, this is like irresponsible reporting. And um, so that's the piece. And it's a very long piece. And it's written right before the next appearing in the magazine is a David Frum piece going against gay marriage. I mean, you nice. Know, so perfect. It's um, you see that you see that trend also. I mean, continuing throughout his career and especially with his show Tucker Carlson tonight is just his obsession with. And I hate to play the identity politics card, but like in his case, it's kind of hard not to in terms of talking about his obsession with like women of color. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was obsessed with AOC. Right. He was obsessed with Kamala Harris, obsessed with Maxine Waters and obsessed with Ilhan Omar. Yeah. And I think that that I mean, it speaks to also the red meat he's trying to throw out for like the reptile brain, knee jerk, reactionary, like conservative bigots in his audience, because it's been like that for a while that women of color who are outspoken and, you know, can be visibly angry and in video recordings and things. That's like a just a, such a perfect fuel right. to just be be like ah oh, those fucking bitches what are, who are these bitches think they are I mean like it <laughs> it just does it just taps on a basic level even though I really don't care for anyone in the squad 
at all. Like it's, it's still, it's off. You can at least see that that's what it's, you know, it's designed to do. It's not like these people deserve the amount of focus he's giving them. I mean, and like we said, when he interviewed, I think the first segment he did on Ilhan Omar or one of the first was basically a defense of Elliot Abrams segment and poo-pooing anybody going after Elliot Abrams for Iran Contra. Um, so exactly, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. So Robbie, after, after the stint at the weekly standard, um, it's really interesting to see where Tucker went after that, because it really shows you how these people blow in the wind and they can go from one network to the next. And especially him working closely with Rachel Maddow and taking her under his wing. Um, he started at CNN he was co-host of the debate show Crossfire, which we talked about some transcripts from around the Iraq war drive. Um, he was booted after this segment with Jon Stewart. I remember this happening because we were pretty glued to the media at that point. Um, but I remember Jon Stewart, then host of The Daily Show, going on Crossfire and saying, you guys are like destroying the country and you're a dick or something. And it was like this huge embarrassing moment for Tucker. And um, even I think like one executive at CNN was just like, I agree with Jon Stewart's premise. Uh-huh. <laughs> that this, uh, this partisanship is like destroying the country or something. It was like very weird. Then he moves on to MSNBC, gives him another primetime show where he chose Rachel Maddow, who eventually took over Carlson's spot as part of this like liberal makeover. But at that point they were, they were super close. They were working together. They were doing a show. You can see tons of clips from it. It's really strange to just see them together when now people pretend like they're like political enemies. Right. And they're like the yin and yang, even though you can argue Tucker's rhetoric on China is just as bad, if not worse as Rachel's on Russia. But, um, but yeah. And then he, and then he goes on shockingly to have a brief stint on PBS, right? Which is so weird. It's like, it's just so crazy how he's really been through all of these networks, including PBS, which is supposed to be this like super credible, you know, TV network. And you have Tucker Carlson, which was featured on there. But being a creature of television, he's even been on Dancing with the Stars, Robbie. Yeah, I he remember a, that he very had a little, well. Little, little dance on Dancing with the Stars. I'm not sure if he was wearing his bow no, tie that was, for that. That was when he like first went bow tie less and had like unbuttoned top button on his shirt. Oh, wow. That was the... So trying to be a little more sexy. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he thought that he could like make it in just like the entertainment field. You know, he was like dabbling his toes like, okay, where could I go with this? I'm sure. But we, we'd be remiss to not mention the Daily Caller because in 2010, this was when Drudge and Brighton, I don't even know if Breitbart was around at that point, but Drudge was what like really was dominating 2010. Uh, yeah, Breitbart was, yeah. Okay, so yeah, I mean, he created co-founded rather the daily caller which was a far-right news site with his former roommate who he had gone to nicaragua with neil patel who had shit, been man. an aide to dick cheney Fascinating again the circle shit. of neocon neoconservatism right so the daily caller now we know of it you know a lot of these sordid characters are on the daily caller now it's a huge publication it's one of the most read conservative outlets. It has this very popular podcast. I think it, that's where like Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro are now, if I'm not mistaken. But um, but when Tucker started it, it was, you know, we're talking about the world that was really dominated by like the drudges and Breitbarts. And so he really like paved his own space in that world 
and pushed a lot. I mean, a lot of it was adjacent to white nationalism to the point where like interns were found cohorting with neo-Nazis that he tried to to suppress the new like he didn't even fire this intern who came out was hanging out with Matthew Heinberg or something. Um, anyway, there was a lot of weird adjacent things to white nationalism and neo-Nazism that came out of the Daily Caller that it's just like it can't be a mistake you know like that these people like you were saying tucker carlson's head writer was like on this forum just saying super racist stuff i mean these people are fucking racists and they're bigots and this is who they are tucker has always been obsessed with immigrants and he's always legitimized this kind of faux or i guess in recent years kind of this this faux populism laundering anti-immigrant immigrant rhetoric and racist rhetoric through this notion that you know he's one of you fighting against the elites and I, I I think that's it's kind of like this alternative outlet that this started to generate from where he left these mainstream outlets and started this alternative outlet Daily Caller that of course is just another billionaire backed right wing billionaire backed outlet that's now super mainstream but back in the day it was kind of seen as like different and so, you know, even one of the writers, I guess, was seen speaking at the Unite the Right rally, like shit like that, you know. Um, and then he goes he goes back into the fold of Fox after he after people thought that he was out for a long time of these networks. He goes back into the fold of Fox. He was first, I think, at the Fox five. He was like at some other time slot that wasn't really watched. And then he moves into primetime in 2017 after Bill O'Reilly was ousted and Again, like when you think about what happened to Megan Kelly and Bill O'Reilly and they were two hugely popular shows at Fox News, you know, it does seem like the network, it, 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 it's not the end of the world for the network to get rid of the most popular host. The network lives on and the network always has lived on. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, the time frame that his show started to coincide with the Trump administration's rise to power really he really did perfectly kind of fold into the messaging of Trump the rise of Trump he he skyrocketed to popularity essentially becoming Trump's voice this conduit to reach the people on behalf of Trump and to Trump like it was like he was the person who could reach Trump and also he was Trump's ear and like voice. It was a very strange thing that happened. Can I just comment on that yeah, really quickly? That that was one of the most fascinating parts of all of it is that we started just getting a lot of stories, especially in like the last two years of the Trump administration, that Tucker wasn't just like calling him on the phone all the time and giving him policy advice, but he was like at having dinner with him down at Mar-a-Lago all the time sometimes calling emergency powwow meetings and even sometimes seemingly being able to exert some kind of almost like parental influence over Trump. For example, he convinced Trump to have like an emergency dinner with him at Mar-a-Lago when he was privately apparently uh, criticizing Trump directly to him saying like, why aren't you taking COVID more seriously? Like this is really dangerous. This you know, you, 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 I, I feel like you might need to say different things about this. So that's another interesting reversal that Tucker did is Tucker, because a lot people don't remember this, a lot of the right wingers were very much the first fear mongers about COVID very early on. And Tucker actually 
called an emergency meeting with Trump because he felt like Trump was not taking COVID seriously enough in his messaging. And Trump agreed to those kind of meetings. That's a really interesting sort of window into what kind of back and forth relationship they had. I mean, that's, I don't know of anybody in media who had that kind of influence or the, um, you know, uh, be able to get into the president's ear like that. I mean, Obama, Bush, I've never heard of that before. So that's, I mean, that's really fascinating in and of itself. Totally. He was, he was extremely popular, not just with conservative normies and MAGAs, but also this kind of line of um, people in alternative media who not only defended people going on his show, but promoted his show as this last bastion of like anti-establishmentism and anti-war politics on TV because he had Trump's ear, Mm -hmm. right? They deluded themselves into thinking that if they just stroked his ego enough, if they promoted Tucker enough, they too could have Trump's ear. And there were these delusions of grandeur like circulating around that they could reach POTUS, Robbie. People like Craig Murray admitted as such about how he never criticized Trump because he thought that somehow Tucker could convince Trump to pardon Snowden and Assange. I mean, it was a really, really strange thing that was going on. And then you have to, and then let's just say, you know, I can't say for sure I don't have any knowledge of it, but the actual, if you extrapolate that same concept to uh, the larger sphere of left alt media that, that tends to focus on anti-war, it, it could have been very possible that some of these people maybe, I mean, and I'm just throwing this possibility out there. I have no evidence to say this is true. Someone like Jimmy Dore maybe even thought he had some kind of uh, ability to reach Trump and that that and that maybe even filled him with some kind of like narcissistic power power trip. What did that do to other people in all media? It's not just that they got boosted by appearing on Tucker and, and generated a lot of revenue for themselves just by simply going on Tucker's show. I mean, it probably increased some of their revenue in some instances, probably like fivefold, just getting that much TV airtime. But they, you also have to wonder: Did they also get sucked into this delusion or a little almost like a drug? being dangled in front of their face that, oh my God, maybe you, maybe you can get into Trump's ear, you know? I mean, his children are already retweeting people that I bring on my show all the time. I mean, so it's like, it seems almost very close. It's like when Elon Musk starts being your reply guy, it's like, oh my God, like Elon Musk is like only like one, he's like, this is not even like six degrees of, of Elon Musk. Like he's talking to me, you know, right. it's, you have to wonder what kind of effect that kind of stuff has exactly. on people. People exactly. and and then people in that sphere are always like access journalism, you know, is one of the worst things. They and you know Jimmy Dore is like constantly going after Ryan Grimm, who I don't necessarily care for either. But the fact that it's like about this idea of access journalism is like, what do you think that shit is? If you're getting tempted by some kind of like power trip that you can access the president or exert influence on Tucker or, you know, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. It's like that's really it seems really squirrely to me. Um, and I, I don't know what to make of it. And I don't, it's interesting to me that no one's really addressed it. I haven't heard people talk about that aspect of how, what effect that had on the alt media sphere, the left space specifically, I mean. Absolutely. Um, why don't we talk about Tucker's greatest hits? And I want you to kind of take the lead on the anti-China rhetoric sure. because you have been on this tip for 
many years and you've been sounding the alarm about how Tucker has been one of the leading proponents of war with China, of anti-China fear-mongering propaganda saying that China is really the greatest threat, not Russia. So I don't know how this has been missed by so many people, but Tucker is one of the worst culprits. Well, yeah, this is one of the more, and, and I just, so if people have been listening to the podcast up until this point and they're thinking to themselves, okay, the, all this stuff looks bad for Tucker. It makes him seem less credible and makes him seem like he does, has done some rebranding, but at the end of the day, he's still on TV, seemingly moving the needle to exert influence on like us pulling out of things like Ukraine or certain wars. I could see people who are, who are, you know, even fans of our podcast listening up at this point and, and having that view so far of what we've said. However, this is one of the things that I think it's hardly any coverage and it needs to be really emphasized is that Tucker Carlson, he became the most popular uh, TV news guy on television, the most viewed television show for many years. That's an, an undisputable fact. And also, Tucker Carlson is vehemently anti-China. And for the last several years, since the pandemic especially, he has been pushing not just anti-China content on a regular basis, but specifically pipelining in some of the most textbook neocon propaganda talking points on China that have been around for a really long time, but are being amped up again by some of these neocon think tanks like the Manhattan Institute, like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, like the Hudson Institute, like the Heritage Foundation. He has been having on guests, politicians even, like Marco Rubio, like um, I'm trying to think of some of these other hawkish right-wing anti-China politicians, but he's had on a slew of just neocon propagandists on China, Gordon Chang, as a regular guest on his program. And Gordon Chang, for people who don't know who he is, he was most famous for writing like a book, I think it's called The Collapse of China, which he predicted was going to happen in like 2005, I think. So Gordon Chang is one of like the most leading voices on sort of the anti-China neocon propaganda tip. But what's I, I think it's just really needs to be emphasized here that he was probably the most influential voice. And I, I say probably kind of trying not to overstate things, but I believe that he really was. It's hard to say who was more influential than him on the front of moving the needle in this country politically to go from thinking, you know, that the virus just came from China, uh, you know, the COVID-19 to actually thinking that like there was this overarching and very dangerous Chinese conspiracy to basically like take over the United States and to lock us down. And they maybe even made this as a bioweapon and on and on and on to the point where, you know, he pushed like pro Taiwan, like anti China stuff. I mean, some of the most boilerplate neocon China stuff you can imagine. And he was doing this on his program. I would say, like, at least every other, well, that's maybe generous. I mean, probably at least once a week. He would have a segment on. And one of the common themes, even just on a visual level, you just have to see a screenshot of it from this Jacobin article uh, that says 
the China threat. That's their thumbnail image for the article. Him sitting at his desk on his program with like a red, you know, big backdrop behind him of with the font saying the China threat. That red imagery would constantly be used during this during these segments, which became probably his most regularly occurring segments. I mean, I don't, I can't remember any other segment where we had a similar graphic to that, like all the time, you know, where he'd introduce a segment. This was like a, it was kind of like a segment on his program and to some degree, the sense that it became like, you know, something you would expect. The graphic would be like, oh, it's time for the China shit. Like here's, here it comes, just red China. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to go into some of the stuff in the, the Jacobin article, but I thought it was actually fairly good. I mean, especially considering Jacobin's track record. I mean, well, I mean, Branko is yeah. pretty good. So, I mean, I, that's, this is what I'm saying about all these outlets. It's like, you can, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like there's good writers at all these outlets and I, and Branko Marsitek is actually yeah, very, I, very good. I, I thought this article was and great. And so, you know, yeah. And so why don't you talk about the article? But I wanted to just say one quick thing, which is that it really speaks to Tucker's anti-communism. And just like how Bannon is obsessed with China, you can find that current of like sympathizing with Russia and saying, you know, we should work with Putin all day. That's not unique at all with the strain of conservatism. What is also it all leads to China. It all leads to China um, because China is the big prize. And that also, if you want to go talk about what the empire is doing, that's the age of Asia pivot. So how is this anti-empire? How is this anti-imperialist? How is this anti-war when you're just marching us along toward what the entire U.S. empire is pivoting toward in their in, in their strategy documents. I mean, this is well, as simultaneously, plain as day. And this is something that Branko, really the only thing he doesn't touch on in this article is that simultaneously while making Americans paranoid that like China has basically taken us over, that we're like cucked by China, that the Biden administration is controlled by China it really almost is like a different version of in the same way that some of the most vociferous paranoiac propagandizing Democrats did about Trump and Russia. It really has that same flavor because the overall picture, and it's almost like Tucker has done a more, I'd say a deeper implantation of that because he does seem to have a lot of people who are listeners of like Alex Jones or people who are really into conspiracies, like who, take him seriously. So it really, I feel like his influence and power in that regard has been very strong. I mean, he's even been one of the main drivers in the idea that the WHO is just an arm of China and that that's, you know, that they exerted influence on, on us by China. That's, and I think that that's really shaped the way the right views the whole situation now is they don't even see this as like individual democratic governors deciding, you know, how to treat their their COVID uh, rules in, internally in their own states. They're seeing it almost like this, China has control over all these Democrats, and they're basically pushing some kind of agenda, like the farmland, you know, being bought up by basically private Chinese citizens, um, was like a segment on Tucker that, trying to drum up all this paranoia and things like that. So, I mean, but, but Branko says here in the article that, I mean, he basically starts his article saying that Tucker is essentially trying to use the idea that we shouldn't be doing anything to go, you know, do any war in Ukraine or 
be adversarial with Russia so that we can build an alliance with Russia to go against China. Um, and he says, if your main priorities are one day fighting a war with China and maintaining U.S. supremacy across the globe instead of, say, fixing the myriad homegrown crisis of poverty and wealth inequality that fuel American despair, Washington's foreign policy of antagonizing both Russia and China at the same time has been entirely backward. Um, so, I mean, it is really, it's, I don't know if you want to go into some more specifics. No, I mean, keep going. Uh, no, this is... Hold on. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. And he's, he's obsessed with the idea that China, you know, that fake theory that China is the one who's colonizing the planet and that all of these development projects and, you know, infrastructure loans and all this stuff, it's like China is this huge threat. And for someone who claims to be anti-empire or people, you know, I don't even know if he really calls himself that, but for someone who claims to be like anti-war and concerned about endless wars and neocons and all this stuff, it's like, why are you promoting the main talking point that is deflecting from what we do? God damn it. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just reading the rest of this Branco article. And it, I mean, you really almost have to ask the question. It's like, why are some of these people trying to whitewash Tucker so hard? How could they have such a blind spot if that's what it is for this amount of foreign policy regime change propaganda. I mean, this is, this is textbook neocon propaganda. This is what he's saying about China in various segments. Um, he's talking about, uh, so this is just some quotes. Branko has an article, has in his article for many years, the threat from China to the United States has been growing it is no longer simply an economic rival to the United States, but a dangerous enemy, a racist and militarized ethnostate that has run along traditional fascist lines for the benefit of a specific ethnic group. It plans to rule the world. In fact, it already is taking over the world, Carlson insisted in one particularly melodramatic segment on what he called the brutal Chinese colonization of Latin America. I mean, just going back to all the CIA and Elliot Abrams stuff, it it's just mind-blowing to think that how could people not see this? That this is this is having a huge, huge influence. I mean, Branco, and I don't even remember this Carlson doing this, but Branco says in his article that Carlson was among the most prominent voices criticizing Biden for waiting before shooting down the Chinese spy balloon that drifted off course and over the U.S. mainland this past February, claiming falsely that the aircraft contained explosives. I mean, so that probably has a huge influence on its own. I don't know that it, for sure that it was a Chinese spy balloon, as Branko says here in this article, but imagine the kind of influence that would have over just the the political, you know, climate at that time for the most prominent news program in the country to say something like that, that it has explosives. I mean, that is classic neocon trickery to me. I, I don't know how, but again, people have moved the goalposts and basically redefined neocon to only mean Max Boot, David Frum, Robert Kagan, and Bill Crystal. Those are the only four neocons that exist sometimes in these people's world and I guess none of the other people who have been designing this anti-China rhetorical frame to eventually to do the Asia pivot, as you say, are called out. They're not considered neocons. 
Well, it's funny about this article, too, is going back to your point about how he's essentially taking the playbook of the Russiagate hysterics and now applying them to China, China Gate, that China is behind every domestic problem from the fentanyl crisis to just blighted homes, (laughs) you know, like everything like manufacturing. I mean, it's really like as cartoonish as that because it's everything can be generalized to somehow it's China's fault. And it just goes back to who are the elites that Tucker's railing against? It's just like China, like China, the Chinese Communist Party. Is that the elites? Because by proxy, even if you're talking about Democrats and partisan Dems and elites that exist in this country, really, according to people like Tucker, they're all controlled well, exactly, by China anyway. I think that, that is exactly the point. And that really, I think, maybe even shows you this, like, let's get, let's get a little tinfoil right now and say that maybe this shows the true sophistication of maybe how deep this Asia pivot has really gone. I mean, the commission on the present danger China, this really obscure think tank that, you know, ended up doing like two podcasts about a couple of years ago, they actually came out of what is known as the team B group that was basically under Paul Wolfowitz in the Reagan administration to exaggerate the threat of the Soviet Union by basically inventing like fake stats. So the CIA was basically competing for influence over the president at the time with their estimates of the Soviet Union's capabilities. And Team B was this group that included Paul Wolfowitz that was basically trying to uh, like say that the CIA was trying to downplay it, essentially. That they that the real capabilities were much much worse, and that sort of that and and I think even Adam Curtis maybe goes into that and the power of nightmares that sort of plays a big chunk of the first part of that that documentary, and it's important it's a it's an essential ne- part of neocon history because what it shows is that this is not something that happened you know started happening only in the Bush administration when they quote unquote lied about WMDs this is like a tradition that was done to create not just like internal pressure, but also to like, like to create like external political pressure. Like these neocons were also working with like right-wing media figures to also exaggerate the threat of the Soviet Union as well. And this is how a lot of that stuff works. It's like, it creates like, it goes into the political system in the media landscape too. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's more to it than just, you know, the government, uh, you know, implanting messaging into the media ecosystem to propagandize us. It's it's more complex than that. And the Team B group um, is the one that basically created the Committee on the Present Danger China, shut it down for many, many years. In fact, I think it was closed down for something like 20 years and was resurrected like either right before or right after the COVID pandemic. I don't remember exactly what, if it was before or after, but the timing is really significant. This is a group of people who are instrumental in exaggerating the Soviet threat during the Reagan era and probably prolonged the Cold War, actually did significant, like exerted their influence to, to, to literally do that. Like if they didn't do that, the Cold War might have even ended in the early 80s, like which is sort of surreal to think that that just a small group of people can do something like that. And they're and they are behind this think tank. So you really have to wonder, is this just some larger 
apparatus here that is that is sort of using this whole canard of populism, the elites trying to beat us down to basically go after China. Because if it's all framed under this idea that China is essentially controlling our democratic politicians and people who are in power, then that's what it amounts to. It amounts to like a complete takeover. It's and it and it really does speak harken back to like the old school Cold War rhetoric about like communist infiltration and sort of the communist takeover and the Red Scare, essentially. But it's different than that because it's more I would say there's more of a racist xenophobic tinge to it that also aims to downplay American empire and our power around the world. It so aims to sorry, go ahead. So what you're saying is Tucker's not a socialist? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Holy shit, man. You're blowing my mind. No, it's totally, totally true, Robbie. I think you just articulated it perfectly. And I mean, out of all the horrible things that Tucker's going to go down for with his legacy for the last five years as the premiere show on Fox News, I think that the anti-China rhetoric has done by far the most damage and what he should be remembered for just as much as the virulent racism that he spews and the anti-trans rhetoric. I mean, that should be right up there. And it's not reported on nearly enough because of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus and that a lot of these liberals who hate Tucker for the racism don't give a shit that he's been saying all this crazy stuff about China and ramping up this rhetoric because it just doesn't matter to them. But it's super damaging by far, I, I, I would agree with you that it has been the most influential voice um, because he's watched by 3.4 million people every night, right? It's the most watched news show. So, so it would make sense that it has wielded the most influence. And here we are, Robbie, here we are with the Asia pivot. This is where things are headed. Um, the great power competition doctrine that is going into effect as we speak. Um, and that's really where all of the stuff about Russia, all the sympathies about Putin and all of the anti-Ukraine funding all falls to that same premise that we need to be working with Russia to counter China. It's not because we it's not because of any altruistic thing. It's not because of any anti-imperialist stance. It's simply that we are focusing on the wrong enemy country. Yeah, so you could talk you could talk all you want about warmongers or the elites or whatever, but these things really don't mean anything if you're not specifically talking about who or if you're not specifically going after both parties. And you know, it's it's really it's just I just think that people seem to just still be just grasping for this like low hanging fruit stuff. Mm -hmm. Anytime they hear something that sounds like that, they gravitate towards it. And I can understand why I have empathy for it, but I just also think that it's just, it's does, if it doesn't have substance behind it, and especially if it's being used to propagandize people and influence millions of people in this country to want to go to war with China, even if it's, even if they're not thinking about it as like waging like a physical like ground troops war with China, more just like inching towards, you know, some kind of march towards something, like amping up the adversarial nature towards China. That is what how that is the groundwork that's laid for 
wars. There's a whole art to it. So it is really fascinating that people, there's a lot of people in denial that that's even what's being done because they're like, well, he's not saying we should go to war with China. You know, like I'll have people say that to me sometime and I'll be like, well, yeah, he's not literally saying I want to go to war with China tomorrow, but do you not understand? Like, this is how all this stuff works. Like the groundwork is laid, you know, I mean, besides like a, a tiny fraction of like really crazy Democrats, no Democrats were saying we should go to war with Russia, you know, like just overtly, except like people like Michael Morell were saying some pretty crazy things. But in general, that's not how this is typically done. But Tucker is doing it in the same way that it's been always been done to lay the groundwork for to soften people up and just pivot people towards this. I mean, talk about grooming. This has been like a three year long grooming campaign to exert an incredible amount of influence over the American public to be paranoid about China. He is the most popular TV news program in the United States. Even if he has only 3 million viewers, or is that how many you were saying? 3.4, yeah. 3.4 million viewers. Imagine just the ripple effects that that oh, has. Oh, yeah, and all the clips that were viral. I mean, they yes. would each get millions and millions of hits on Twitter and on exactly. YouTube and on Rumble. I mean, you have to really think of the exponential growth that once these clips were off the air, how they took on a life yeah. of their own. Um, Robbie, let's let's just recount some of the greatest hits from Tucker. Yeah. Um, and then let's give our concluding thoughts here. I mean, I feel like the white supremacist, white nationalist stuff has been so widely talked about that we don't really need to go into his descent into just, you know, white supremacy and all of the crazy. The great replacement anti- theory. Yeah, stuff. the great replacement theory. We know that he was doing that. He was super dog whistling to white nationalists. They called him their guy, right? And the reason that he had such a huge appeal to those people was because he was on cable TV. Anyone can go on Rumble and say that stuff. Talk about the great replacement theory. Talk about all the stuff about immigrants that he would normally do. But they saw their guy being mainstreamed and they saw this kind of language being mainstreamed. And that was the biggest draw, I think, from a lot of the more out there openly racist people to Tucker is that um, it was being done on cable TV and that's unmatched. And, um, you know, being performed as this kind of renegade speech, standing up to the woke mob and standing up to communists and standing up to big corporate advertisers who were dropping him and trying to get him fired. And that was why he was so attractive. He was seen as like this person who was battling all these things and still standing tall and still able to speak these hidden forbidden truths. But I think that that amazingly, I and I'm very happy to say that I think that this is the biggest he'll ever be. I don't think that he will go anywhere near as big as Fox News level. I don't think he has a presidential campaign waiting for him. Um, and I do think that his main audience that was watching him on Fox News will not bleed over to his new show on Twitter. I just can't see the majority of people over 60 years old watching, I don't, I'm assuming it's going to be like a longer show than, you know, two, even five minutes. I just can't imagine people watching more than five minutes on an iPhone um, that just sat, you know, sat back and watched Fox News. I just can't imagine that same demographic watching the new Tucker show on their iPhones on Twitter. So I'm hoping that he's peaked, right? 
that he's not going to be able to have the same draw because anyone can say this stuff on the internet. None of that is new or interesting at all. The only reason he was interesting is because he had the platform that he did and that it was on such a huge corporate news channel. But let's just quickly talk about his greatest hits other than the great replacement theory stuff and his crazy rhetoric about race and black people and the knockout games and the Roma people. I mean, I'll I'll never forget one of the only Tucker segments I was watching just randomly was him talking about how Roma people are invading our neighborhoods and shitting in the streets. Um, that was one of the only times Glenn Greenwald like quasi confronted him on his content too. Like on air? On when he brought him on his like system update show. Yeah. Or no, he he actually I think it was one of the things that probably actually created or precipitated Glenn's ousting from the intercept is he interviewed him on like the intercept podcast. The only thing he like mildly confronted him on was that Roma special. <laughs> and then at the end of it, he just sort of conceded that Tuck. Oh, he like he he didn't really push back very hard on it at all. I mean, it was. But anyways. Yeah. I mean, it was just one of many. I mean, the, the fact that that was like one of the only Tucker segments that I watched in full, I was like, my mouth was just agape thinking like this is Tucker. I mean, it was crazy, you know? And I mean, yeah. I mean, and he was one of the biggest critics of Black Lives Matter. He really ran and led the charge that, you know, the woke mobs and the corporations were all woke and that um, Derek Chauvin was really innocent, actually, which is funny. It's like, I don't even know. You don't need to go there, dude. I mean, we all saw what he did. Like, I think he pushed the fentanyl thing. He pushed. Yes, like, he, he pushed died the from fentanyl thing. All yep. that kind of stuff. The, 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 the protesters were criminal mobs, you know, just all of that stuff, like really just going really balls to the wall on that. Who can forget, Robbie? I know we covered this on this show. The praising of the queen, claiming that the British civilized India and all of the insane things he said about the queen in Africa. Um, I mean, it might even be worth playing another clip because it is one of the most absurd monologues he's ever given. And it really shows like, hmm, is this guy really anti-war? Because it seems like he's like whitewashing the shit out of the queen and the rampage of colonialism that killed countless millions of people so it is one of the most hilarious clips i think from tucker it's hard to believe now but britain wasn't always a regional banking center slash refugee camp it was a real place with a history and a language and a culture and a genuinely remarkable people a country in the north atlantic the size of alabama that somehow took over the world and ruled it with decency unmatched by any empire in human history. The British Empire was not perfect, but it was far more humane than any other, ever. It's gone now, barely even remembered. Queen Elizabeth II was the last living link to a truly great Britain. Today on social media, the usual ghouls celebrated her death. Quote, may her pain be excruciating, a Carnegie Mellon professor called Uju Anya wrote on Twitter of the Queen. May she die in agony. Various know-nothings in the media, including a columnist at The Atlantic and a couple of employees of NBC News, seconded that thought. The British Empire was evil, they wrote, apparently totally unaware of what came after it. And speaking of what did come after the British Empire, ready. In an ideal world, there would not be empires, no empires, only sovereign nations. But we don't have that world, and we never have had that world, going back to at least the Assyrians, 1400 years before Christ. In the real world, the one that we live in, 
Strong countries dominate weak countries, and that trend shows no sign of changing. The very least you can say about the English is that they took their colonial responsibilities seriously. They didn't just take things, they added. So despite what they may be claiming on Twitter tonight, the British Empire was more than just genocide. In fact, the British did not commit genocide, except arguably against the Dutch during the Boer War. The British Empire spread Protestant Christianity to the entire world. It published some of the greatest literature ever written and produced the finest manufactured goods ever made anywhere at any time, including now. It was an impressive place run by impressive people. We will see many empires going forward, but we will never see one so benign. That's true. And because it's true, the people who would like to run the world in a far harsher way would like to make certain that you don't know it. And so they destroy the evidence, the evidence that ever existed. Of course, you know, I mean, you can look, I mean, he's, he's probably done thousands of segments about refugees, you know, making the country dirtier, poorer, overwhelming the country, calling them herds, calling them whatever, just the dehumanizing terms about refugees and immigrants. That's why he probably hates Ilhan Omar so much, um, other than the fact that she's a woman, because I'm sure he's he's a disgusting misogynist as well. But he's he was on the tip of the white farmer genocide in South Africa. One of the most hilarious things that he did was um, just reefer madness shit. I mean, 2022, dude, like talking about how weed could be a factor in mass shootings you know, just really demonizing marijuana. It's like, dude, what on the hell? Are you like going back to the 1950s? Like, what is wrong with you, dude? Um, so, and then just like the hysterically anti-woke stuff about like M&Ms and stuff, you know, M&Ms are no longer sexy. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. You can't jerk off to the M&M box anymore, man. Bet you didn't think M&Ms were pushing intolerance, but they were. They've been changed. You're seeing the changes right now on your screen. The green M&M, you will notice, is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. Why the change? Well, according to M&Ms, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles because leading women do not wear sexy boots. Leading women wear frumpy shoes. The frumpier, the better. That's the rule. The other big change is that the brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels. Less sexy. That's progress. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. Wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, we've achieved equity. They've won. Anything to say about I mean, those it's two just, things? It's just... It's just... Uh, <laughs> it's... it's it's, it, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just still blown away and just so upset <laughs> at how much influence and how much whitewashing and signal boosting he's gotten in the alt media space. It's, it's just, it's so, I know you are. And it, it, it I, I just, I just think it caused irreparable damage. I just don't think that it should have happened. I mean, we can't reverse time and change history now. It already happened. But like, like, I, I get what you're saying about him not being able to, have the same type of like appeal or be in that zone or that sweet spot of having a TV show and, and, and being able to put out this kind of stuff. But I still think he's going to play a really big role moving forward, but maybe yeah. he, I mean, like, you know, because he seemed chameleon like, and because he has rebranded so well, maybe he'll, he'll just exit just because he's wants to do something else. I mean, I, I don't know what his actual personal 
agenda is. But I mean, well, he can he can keep milking the fact that he was fired? Well, of for course, that, yeah. You know, he he what he already has, and so as long as he keeps going down that road and now working with Elon Musk to launch this new show, I mean, it it perfectly fits together. But one thing that irritated me the most, looking back at his career, especially doing the Tucker Carlson show on Fox, was how much he was a leading proponent of climate denialism. And this is especially upsetting, working on this movie for two years, seeing how much irreparable damage and disgusting rhetoric he put out there about how the climate change, about how climate change wasn't real, Robbie, that it's not man-made, that climate change concerns are a religion. And I'm reading from, I'm reading from The Guardian right now, I'm actually quoting him, that the entire theory of human-caused climate is absurd that climate change is like systematic ra- systemic racism in the sky. You can't see it, but rest assured it's everywhere and it's deadly. He said in another segment that climate is changing, but humans haven't caused it. He said climate change is a mixed blessing, that it's actually better than worse. Um, he also went on a huge tirade where he quoted all these headlines, you know, that tired trope about how people used to say mm-hmm. that there was an ice age Rush coming, Lamba, yeah. but then the ice age didn't arrive. And so blah, blah, blah. And so he said, you know, he goes on this whole tirade about that. And then it was too much heat. It was global warming. And it's like, okay, this was a completely cherry picked segment of scientists who were very few, the vast majority of scientists, even from that era, that a few of them said there was an ice age, said that it was no, it was actually global heating. It's hard to really determine how much influence this rhetoric has, but I think it has a lot. You know, I think it really has a lot. And especially because he does come across as one of the more intelligent figures who's trying to just skewer the elites and really speak to the to the real working class of America. I mean, it's just feeding this notion that this is this is some elite agenda, right? This this Davos, this World Economic Forum, they want you to eat bugs, they want you to cut carbon emissions while they can do whatever they want. It just fits into that whole absurd thing and makes people feel like it's fake. And it's disgusting because to me, it's a very dangerous thing and we're just spiraling off a cliff. And if Tucker really was remotely anti-war, he would tell it like it is and say, no, the Pentagon is responsible for a lot of this and we need to completely halt the Pentagon and the global empire if we want to like save the environment because we're all part of the environment. So it's just disgusting. Um, and, you know, it's just sick, you know, and then and then there's that interview with Elon Musk that is just ironic that it comes right before he essentially is probably offered tens of millions of dollars to launch his new show on Twitter, which is so fucking weird. But it's this fawning interview with Elon Musk. I don't want to really go into it, but there is a very strange soundbite that came out of it where Elon Musk is talking about how birth control and abortion are impacting the birth rate and how civilization could collapse if the birth rate keeps falling. I guess that's why he's seeded so many fucking kids. Um, And it's just, Tucker's just nodding along with this. It's just one of the weirdest clips ever because it's like Elon Musk is such a disgusting cretin. You know, and here he is talking about how like women shouldn't have control of their own bodies. It's like, good God, man. But you think that we take our existence here for granted. Yeah, I think there are threats to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, that's, for example, why I'm concerned about decreasing birth rates and and, um, the fact that, for example, Japan uh, had twice as many deaths last year as births. 
Can, can I say, and you've, you've written a lot and talked a lot about this, but can I just ask you to pause just for a parenthetical note? Why is that? I mean, the urge to have sex and to procreate is, after breathing and eating, the most basic urge. Yes. How has it been subverted? Well, it's just the, in the past, <laughs> we could rely upon, um, you know, so, simple uh, limbic system rewards uh, yes. in order to procreate. Um, but uh, once you have birth control um, and, you know, uh, Abortions and whatnot. Now, now you, now you can still satisfy the limbic instinct, but not procreate. Um, so we don't, we haven't yet evolved to deal with that, because this is all fairly recent. You know, last fifty years or so, um, for the for birth control. You know, so I'm, I'm sort of worried that hey, civilization. You know, don't, if we don't make enough people to at least sustain our numbers, perhaps increase a little bit, then civilization is going to crumble. There's this, the old question of, like, uh, will civilization end with a, a bang or a whimper? Well, it's currently trying to, to end with a whimper in adult diapers. Yes. Uh, which is depressing as hell. The most depressing. The mo- I mean, seriously. I mean, what do you think about just that whole pivot over? I mean, we we said in the last podcast we were going to do part two. We weren't able to do that. But, I mean, it, it kind of all links together with the Twitter oh, yeah. files sprinkling this notion that the CIA is still controlling things and then giving Tucker his new voice on Twitter and Elon just showering him with cash. Meanwhile, Elon's saying that the, you know, the Texas mass shooting is a psyop. It's like, it's straight up, I mean, straight up promoting like fascist propaganda, but also just now being the savior of free speech, giving Tucker a new platform. Tucker's releasing his first video saying free speech is all that matters. And that's why he's so grateful to be at Twitter I mean. Now. The one thing I think is really clear about all this is that Elon Musk has some sort of desire or agenda to lift up and amplify this whole like media, like weird Trump adjacent media ecosystem that includes Tucker being at basically the top of that all the way down to the very depths, the cesspool of like QAnon level, like conspiracizing. I mean, Elon Musk was even like, being a reply guy with Ron Watkins recently. I don't know if you saw that, Abby, saying that, um, I don't even remember what he was saying to him, but it's like, what is going on here? I mean, and this is like Sandy Hook level type of stuff that he's dabbling in. And I still do not take it at face value. I do think there's something, there is some overall larger strategy here for him to become like a me- some kind of, me- have his own media block. I don't know why for what overall purpose. I mean, obviously he's wants to make money. I mean, that could be one of the main purposes, but still it is an unusual way of doing this. I mean, giving Tucker the first Twitter television show. I mean, that's what it is, right? Like there aren't any other Twitter right. shows. Um, and like, and the fact that he would release this algorithm of Twitters and be like, Oh yeah. Like we're just like leaking the algorithm. Check it out. It's it just you know on one hand it's just so craven and transparent that what he's trying to do is hide something else, and what he's I I don't know if he's trying to hide this specifically, but it's so obvious that once he took over Twitter, that like the right wing like stuff and some of the bigger right wing accounts like Ian Miles Chong and those people are getting heavily signal boosted to a point that they were never getting boosted before. If you reply. To one of those people now on Twitter, they will just be in your feed in perpetuity now, like at the top, every time you go on. That was never like that bef- to that extent before. And he's not releasing the algorithm that shows how that's happening. You know, 
Like that's so it's like it, on one hand he's like here's the algorithm guys I'm a, I'm just going to open source this shit check it out and then it's like well what is all this other shit happening where it's like you're heavily boosting these people online not just being the reply guys and letting them talk in these twitter spaces that you see every day like on the top right corner where it's always like the same four motherfuckers it's like what the fuck it's 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 worse than that it's like he's completely juked the algorithm to slant it so much in their favor now that it's like what the hell is happening here i mean it's so crazy dude when i sign on i mean twitter is just accessible i can't i cannot be on it anymore and it's just not only am i completely shadow banned to the point where i have three hundred fifty thousand followers and my stuff gets like two like like yeah yeah engagements <laughs> like whenever i post something but it's like when i go to twitter it just is things recommended for me and it's like riot uh whatever the fuck lives at tiktok elon of course and just crazy ass conservatives and i'm like i don't even follow anyone like this makes no sense i mean the algorithm is now just signal boosting the worst of the worst people that i hate there's nothing of anyone that i follow would remotely suggest that i want to see this garbage in my timeline but it's forced upon you and I really, I mean, Elon is such a baby. I agree with what you're saying, that this is all some big, larger strategy to be like a kingmaker and to be this new messaging system where he's like pushing right-wing propaganda. But it is like, a, to a certain extent, knowing now that he was so butthurt about like the onion, like he wanted to buy yeah. the onion. Well, he basically- Like it goes back to him just wanting to be funny and wanting people to like him and he tried to buy the onion and then he tried to do this offshoot comedy site that bombed and then the Babylon B thing. And now he just like reposts boomer means from Facebook and steals people's content. It's just like it is so strange what he's doing. I don't really know where this is going to go. But it's really baffling, like how much of a baby brain. This I mean, on is. one hand, it, it, he is. But then on the other hand, it's like he's he does seem to have he knows that this is like a very influential media sphere to buy. I mean, whatever he was trying to do with the onion and stuff before it's like, yeah, like, you know, maybe that was when he was in his earlier years, more amateur thinking he could make some kind of rival to the onion. I mean, it was an idiotic, completely stupid move to think he could do that. And it didn't, and it's actually a funny story, funnier story than it just bombing. He, like got cold feet about it. He like lost interest in doing like a rival to the onion and just pulled all the funding. So all the people that he took away from the onion, he hired all these ex-employees from the onion, just like got like dropped. You know, they, the, the ball was completely dropped on them. They had no way to continue it. They had spent like two years of their lives about to launch this new. Yeah. So he's just like yeah, a fickle yeah. So psycho. It's like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's so fucking, I mean, I mean, again, it's like this weird dichotomy where he's a baby brain lunatic, but then at the same time, he's also like Machiavellian, like mad scientist who who sees the big picture in a sense of knowing how, knowing the whole plan of buying Twitter and doing this. And I mean, I think both of them could overlap, like where he did it because he's such a narcissist and he wanted to be seen and he wanted to be this kingmaker and in like the alt media spaces and pretend like he's this renegade and blah 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 but like i don't know i mean i don't want to give him too much credit but like i do think there's something larger at play like he's trying to be yes. the new trump right and so when he folds tucker into the fray now like that is going to be very powerful 
I don't think he's going to pull the same audience over from Fox to watch a show on their iPhones on Twitter. But I do think it's going to take on another life and it's going to be weird and surreal to see where this is going to go. We already see the total artificial signal boosting of Tucker's little videos that he's sprinkling out there. I want to wrap this up by one final thought from you because we didn't get to get to it about Tucker's big keynote at the Heritage Foundation because we're going back to that central theme about Mm -hmm. who are the elites, who are the neocons. And this speech is wild. You you sent it to me. It's you can read it, and I mean you could watch the whole thing on the Intercept. I forget who um, who wrote about it. It was a, it was a good article because I haven't really seen anyone else posting this. And this really, if you really want to understand who Tucker is, just watch this because he's he. It almost just seems like it's completely off the cuff. Like this is he has a very interesting and uncanny ability to just ramble like from his heart. And this is really what it's all about, Robbie. You want to see who he's really talking about. You want to see who who is worth railing against to these rich billionaire donors, to the neocons who run the Heritage Foundation. Who is it, Robbie? Tyr- what is tyranny? Who are the fascists? People with pronouns in their bios, people with pronouns in their email signatures and the woke mobs taking over the U.S. I mean, really, that's that's the the trans people yeah. and wokeness. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, he even talks about how, um, you know, we we need to be like godly. We need to aspire to godliness. And he yeah, even yeah, yeah. Go, spends at least a minute saying like, and godliness is cleanliness. And then a few people in the audience like laugh. And he's like, no, I, I'm serious. Like cleanliness is like, it's godliness. And he's like, and he, he it basically goes on to say that like it is like a very weird, just hyper quintessential, almost like blue bud, like elitist type thing to say. It's a, it's really surreal. Um and yeah, we should just play some clips from it because just to close out the program, because it is uh it is quite interesting that this was his last basically big media appearance uh right before he got let go at Fox specific theological terms and just say, if you want to know what's evil and what's good, what are the characteristics of those? And by the way, you know, I, I think the Athenians would have agreed with this. This is not necessarily just a Christian notion. This is kind of a, I would say, widely agreed upon understanding of good and evil. What are its products? What do these two conditions produce? Well, I mean, good is characterized by order calmness, tranquility, peace, whatever you want to call it, lack of conflict, cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's true. It is. And evil is characterized by their opposites. Violence, hate, disorder, division, disorganization, and filth. And I was just, I was so impressed by him as a person and really, the, having spent my life in Washington, I can tell you, if you're not from here, the, the key question about anybody who runs any institution in Washington is how false is this person? <laughs> God sends messages. We can't immediately translate all of them. Uh, so I, I can't tell you what that meant. There clearly is meaning. The point is, uh, the man who runs Heritage is not false at all. In fact, my assessment of him was he's completely real. He's, a complete, he's an honest person. He means it. He's not playing a role. And 
That was so thrilling to me to see that. And by the way, it was confirmed by one of Heritage security people who was standing backstage with me and I asked him, because the security guys always know they're all former cops. You know, they've seen everything. They have seen humanity in various states of drunken undress. Like, you can't shock them. And they know who's real and who's not. And I asked, you know, what do you, what do you think? And one of them said to me, to my face, I would go to war for him. And I thought, and, and these are the kind of people who will tell you the truth. I mean, like, why would he lie to me? And don't forget to go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio to support what we do. Thanks so much.